Welcome to Southfield. My name is Dennis. So glad you chose to join us today. On your way in, you received a folder. There's a card on the inside. We all fill that out. It gives us a way of knowing who's here and being able to share names as well as on the backside. You can share prayer requests and other information that's going on in your life. If it's your first time, you can take that card, fill it out, and rather than putting it in the offering basket in a little bit, take it to the door, and we have somebody standing out there that has a gift for you to say thanks for you coming and being a part of our day. So this morning started with the words, he is jealous for me. I don't know if that line, what that line does to you. Maybe it bothers you a little bit to think of God as someone who's jealous. We tell our kids, don't be jealous. You're not supposed to live like that. Don't have a spirit of jealousy. And then we actually sing about the fact that our God is a jealous God. We're going to be talking about that this morning as we continue our series on uh, uniquely American idols. What does it mean for our God to be a jealous God? A big part of his jealousy has to do with the fact that our hearts at times wander. They tend to want to give allegiance to other false gods, to idols. In fact, the word follow uh, is a real, really closely tied to this idea of adoring, worshiping, and, and being a, a part of what it means to be a child of God. This morning's gospel reading is going to prepare us for our time of communion today. And it's a passage in which Peter is very distinctly called to follow Jesus. And then from there, after we listen to that passage, we're going to go straight into a video. And the video is going to ask you fairly specifically, how are you following Jesus? In what areas is your heart being called away from following Jesus? And then what we like to do around here is we like to take a few moments to just let the message sink in. And to let the Spirit of God do some speaking. So we'll come out of that video and we'll take a minute to just be quiet, to actually pause in the presence of God. And to reflect on everything we've listened to up until that point. And then we'll take communion together. A tray will come to you with bread and cup and take one of each. And we'll listen to some quiet music and again have that time to be able to reflect on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And to give him that allegiance in our life. So like I said, our gospel reading is uh, from the book of John. It's chapter 21. So this is after Jesus has risen. We read, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the two sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Peter said. We'll go with you. So they went out, got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, if you fish, you know what that no feels like. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards 
When they landed, they saw a fire of coals burning, and there were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've caught. So Simon climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, large fish, 153. Believe me, fishermen count. 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come back and have, have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This now was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he had raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And he asked the same of us. God, the disciples had to make a decision. When you called, when Jesus called and said, follow me, they had to drop their nets. They had to drop what was in their hands in order to follow. And you've asked us as your disciples to do the same. Whatever idol it is we're holding in our hands, you've asked us to drop it to follow you. But much like those same disciples, when you left this earth, when you were out of sight for a little bit, their temptation their tendency was to go grab their nets, pick them back up. And once again, you had to ask them to drop their nets and follow. And I pray today that if our hearts have wandered, that you will instill in us a desire once again to drop our nets and to follow you wholeheartedly. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our servers are going to come back right now and receive the offering. So you can place your offering in the basket as passed, as well as your card. Let me share a couple things going on around Southfield. Um, groups got off to a great start this week. Uh, you know, we, we talked last week about the New Connections group and about um, the, the ladies group, the Armor of God, about the Outdoor Life group. And I'll tell you what, every group, I mean, they were packed. It was just really cool to see that great start. Outdoor life, uh, it was kind of fun. You know, it was, it, you know what this weather, week of weather has been like. It was a, a tad chilly, a tad everything. But we had a great time just getting together and doing some cleanup around here. I know the Armor of God group is really enjoying the, the learning that they're doing, learning some new vocabulary words, if not anything else. A lady speaks with some great vocabulary. So anyway, um, it, it really, really encouraged that so many of you, new connections as well, so many of you came in order to share some of your life 
with other people. That is, that is just so important. So we're grateful for that. Again, keep going strong with those groups. They last about another seven weeks, a lot of them. If you didn't jump into one, go ahead. Join this second week. There's still time. Get into that group and make sure that you make those connections with other people. Uh, every week on your folder, remember that that middle column, right down the middle, gives you uh, the announcements of what's going on either now or in the next few weeks, or like this week, it talks some about what's coming in uh, summer. So keep your eyes on that. That's really important. So today, rumor going around Facebook uh, to about 600 of my closest friends that I was born today. And yes, that is true. I don't like have random birthdays just so that you'll say happy birthday or something like that. So uh, anyway, it's kind of fun to share share my birthday this way. You're kind of going, oh, too bad. The poor guy has to work on his birthday, you know. And then I know a lot of you are thinking, well, you only work one day a week, to which I always have to correct you. I mean, I, I don't know why you think that. I work two hours a week, and you're watching one of them right now. So, I mean, to, you know, you're the one that had to be a cop or, a, or, a, or an orthodontist or something. You wanted that. You could have had this nice, easy life. But no, instead, you chose your calling. And that, that's fine. That's up to you. So, but um, seriously, I, I've got to say to you that I'm, just, I'm really grateful that God has given me uh, this really large part of my journey here in this place with you. It's just really been a privilege. If you'd have told me back in 1990. Five, that I would be sharing my 53rd birthday. By the way, today's the day I catch up with Kim. She's been old for about three months. But today I catch up with her, so all is right in the world once again. And, um, but if you'd have told me I'd have been here you know, now, I'd be like, wow, I'd have been surprised, but not at all disappointed. Thanks to you, I look more like Jesus. And I thank you that we get the chance to share that relationship together. So part of the journey that we're on right now is talking about idols, the things that grip our hearts. So, got a little video clip to get us going before we start teaching today. I was coming up against something I could not manipulate, and I could not do anything about it. I started to feel this, this desperation. I really felt like a mistake. But I knew how to feel good, and so I would eat. It seemed the most logical thing was to try to become as successful as possible in the business world. I always had this incredible desire to prove myself Chuck Colson, White House hatchet man. I needed to, to fill this desire to be acceptable, to be loved. I was willing to pay any price. It was my identity. I kind of loved politics. It's the ultimate power game, ultimate power trip. I'm living this life, going to prayer meetings with the men of the church. And in the meantime, we'd brought a computer into our house and I discovered internet porn. Call it addiction, call it sexualizing my needs. They were idols. Food had literally become the counterfeit lover. I had become an idolater. Everything I'm about is to serve the God of money. My gods were uh, get ahead, get power. That's what I was worshiping. That was, that was my God. That was my God. The idols, they never satisfied. They never satisfied. So like I said, last week we started into this new series, Uniquely American Idols. 
there are times as a public speaker that I'd love to have a machine. I may design it. It's a machine that could say out loud what people are thinking. Wouldn't that be kind of fun to just get an idea of what's really going on inside of people's heads? If I were to turn that machine on today, would tune it in, I suspect one or maybe more mind would be thinking something like this. Idols, idols, idols. Why in the world would you devote several weeks in the modern world to talking about idols? I mean, Dennis, come on, look around. There are no pygmy people running around with bones in their hair, doing dances to sun gods for good weather, or to rain gods for moist ground. What are you thinking? I mean, is the next series something like witch doctors, wicked warlocks are worth a visit? You know, what, what's going on here? That guy creeps me out. Doesn't he creep you out? Man, I'm glad we worship God and not him. We got to take him down from the screen. You need something to cleanse your mental palate, okay? This is the Austin's new puppy. I want you to meet Weller, the English bulldog. I mean, I can't stop staring at this stupid dog. I love this dog. If this dog goes missing, you know whose house to come look at. Uh, I just, I love this. This puppy gets my official vote for the cutest thing on Facebook all week long, uh, except Adam and Amy Hughes' daughter, new daughter Madison, babies always trump puppies by a hair, by just a hair, okay? Now I've got to take him down too, or you won't hear another word I'm saying. To the modern mind, idolatry just seems so primitive, so irrelevant. Is teaching on idolatry even necessary? Why would we even go there? Well, I guess it depends on how you define idolatry. Anything that calls my heart away from God is an idol, Anything that competes for my allegiance to God is a form of idolatry. Now, looking at those definitions, is it relevant in the modern world to talk about idols? Idolatry is one of the prime issues raised consistently in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. More than 50 laws in the first five books of the Bible are devoted to idolatry. In Judaism, it is one of the few sins to which the death penalty is attached. All those commandments and references to idolatry have not expired, not one of them. I suspect that if we were to see our spiritual lives through the lens of idolatry, we would gain a new and a fresh perspective on the way we live. We would see that there is a war going on. The gods are at war, and their strength cannot be underestimated. They clash daily over the throne of your heart. God or the God or gods that gain control of that throne determine everything about you, about your relationships, about your decisions, about your values, about your desires, about your dreams. Your daily life and your ultimate destiny is determined by who wins the war over your heart. Every sin you struggle with, every discouragement you're dealing with, even the lack of purpose and meaning in your life is rooted in this hidden battle. It is the battle of the gods at war over you. You see, idolatry is not just one of many sins. No, it is the one great sin from which all the other sins flow. The quote by John Calvin at the beginning of the video clip is so true. Every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. We need to return to Exodus chapter 20. The first few words of the chapter chart out the battlefield for us. The Bible says, Then God gave the people all of these instructions. I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, from the place of your slavery. You must have no other gods but me. 
I do not think it is by accident or mere coincidence that the first command reminds us of the nature and the character of our relationship with God. He reminds the Israelites of some history. He says, I am. That's the sacred name that God used when he called Moses to lead the people. I am the Lord your God. He says, we have a unique relationship. I am yours. You are mine. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from Egypt. Remember? Remember what I did for you? I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, from your place of slavery. Remember where you were before me. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, from your place of slavery. In light of this, in light of who I am, in light of our unique relationship, in light of what I've done for you, you must have no other gods but me. This is a unique and exclusive relationship between us and God. The Israelites spent 400 years in Egypt. They were immersed in a culture that was polytheistic to its very core. Now, I'm going to break that word down for you. I'm going to break it down big, fat, Greek wedding style, okay? Poly is a Greek word for many, and theo is a Greek word for God. That sounds more Jewish than Greek, doesn't it? (laughs) So it's the worship of many gods, very simply, all right? Egypt was the epitome of of a polytheistic culture. The Pharaoh was considered the god of the land. As long, and there was a long list of gods that controlled everything from the sun and the moon to weather and fertility. The 10 plagues that led to the rescue of God's chosen people from, Eden, from Egyptian slavery was not just a random spattering of tortures invented by Jehovah. He didn't sit up there and go, hmm, What'll really bug them? I know, frogs. Let's do frogs. Let's go with that. That'll be fun. It's not the way it worked. Each plague was a direct, frontal, and forceful assault on one of the major deities worshipped by the Egyptians. In each case, our God, Jehovah God, proved his superiority over one of these Egyptian man-made deities. The people were released from Egypt, and they're about to enter Canaan, another territory dominated by cultic idol worship. The Canaanites worshipped idols in the extreme, including human sacrifices, child sacrifices, even infant sacrifices. They came from a culture in Egypt and were headed toward a culture in Canaan that was dominated by the worship of idols. False gods cluttered the land. Our God, Jehovah God, needed to make this point very clear. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, from the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. Please don't fall for those stone statues. They didn't rescue from Egypt. I did. I alone am to be worshipped, God says. No one else. Idolatry is not just one of many sins. No, it it is the great sin from which all other sins flow. If you will really start to explore Whatever spiritual struggle that is going on in your life today, at its core, you would unearth a false god. The struggle is revealing that the false god has assumed control of your heart, and it needs to be dethroned. Idolatry is not an issue. Idolatry is the issue, and it needs to be confronted. Some versions of the Bible translate this verse, you must not have any other gods before me. The the New International Version does, for example. 
Before me can have some interesting English implications. Before me could imply something of a hierarchy, okay? Uh, Something like God saying, hey, as long as I'm number one, as long as I'm first, we're good. You can have a number two God, three God, four God, 221 God. I don't care. As long as I'm in the number one spot, that's fine. But that's not what God's saying, not at all. The New Living Translation does it better. It uses the word but. In fact, there's another way to say this. It could say, before, uh, it could say you are to have no other gods in my presence. And remember, God's omnipresent. So there's no place that you're supposed to have another God but God. The second command flows out of the first. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heavens above or the earth beneath or the water below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Any God placed alongside God or above our God is an idol. Anyone. God in this chapter addresses directly the temptation to craft a replacement deity in the form of a statue. That's primarily what's being talked about here in this passage. You are to have no other gods but me. And there's one clear expression of that. You are to possess no idols. You are not to make one. You are not to bow down to one. You are not to worship one. And then the next phrase really starts to uncover the issue at heart. It says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It's a, I'm a jealous God. To grasp by idolatry is such a grave issue, we have to get a handle on this idea that God is a jealous God. Now, I'm going to ask you for a moment, and I don't have that machine to read your mind. What image comes to your mind when you think of jealousy? What what picture, what, what do you see when you think of jealousy? I imagine teenage dating. Sorry, front row. But this is where my mind goes. Often young, in young love, there exists deep threads of insecurity. The insecurity, if really understood, is rooted in oneself, not the person you're dating. It's an insecurity grounded in a poor self-image as well as emotional immaturity. Again, sorry. You're really good. Okay? No problem. So early dating is often marked by constant expressions like, why were you talking to him? Why did you sit near her? Why is her phone number still in your contact list on your phone? Why did you like his Facebook comment? You'll hear those things coming up. This kind of jealousy is petty. In fact, it's petty, it's small, and it's ugly. Now, think about it. If that's the kind of jealousy that I'm going to apply to God, God does not look very impressive, does he? God looks petty and small and kind of ridiculous. I'm not really impressed with that kind of God, to be perfectly honest. He seems like a kid with a bad self-image and an underdeveloped underdeveloped emotional menu. Other images come to our mind when we think of jealousy. Maybe you think of Bible stories. What drove Joseph's, Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery? Bible says it was jealousy. What drove Saul to chase David all over the kingdom of Israel? The Bible says it was jealousy. Repeatedly, the apostles are harassed by religious leaders. Why? Jealousy. Paul stated in Philippians that there are some who actually preach out of a motivation of rivalry and jealousy, rather out of pure motives of love for God. So whether it is teenage love or these biblical examples, jealousy is seldom put in a positive light. 
We don't teach our kids, you really need to fine-tune jealousy. You really need to learn how to be good and jealous. It's not something that we see as positive. Now, add to this the long list of verses that come out and condemn jealousy as a sin, as a vice from which we are to flee. 1 Peter 2, 1 says, so get rid of all evil behavior. And now he's going to say what evil behavior looks like. Be done with deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. So he's calling jealousy unkind behavior. Over in Galatians 5, Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, and he also lists what the nature of the flesh looks like. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and all these sins. Let me tell you again, as I've said before, that anyone living this sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. He puts jealousy in the same list as he does sorcery and as he does sexual impurity. Uh, It does not sound like an impressive thing to carry with you, right? James chapter 3, verse 15 to 16. For jealousy and selfishness are are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. He calls jealousy demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, you will find disorder and evil of every kind. One of our kids in our church posted this image this past week on version. It's, it's a verse found in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30. A peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. Jealousy is like cancer in the bones. I mean, whether it is looking at teenage love or looking at stories in the Bible, or looking at verses in the Bible, we look at all this, and jealousy is listed as undesirable, sinful, evil, even demonic in nature, yet God is described as a jealous God. How do those two things go together? How does that work? What are we to make make of this? Is God evil? Is God demonic? Is God on the wrong side on this? Let me offer a possible solution. It is possible that jealousy in its purest form is not a sin. Think about this. Many sins are actually rooted in something really good that's taken to an extreme. The Bible does not forbid eating, but it says gluttony is a sin. So one of my birthday presents was going to that restaurant where they walk around with meat on big swords. And they're just walking around and they're cutting this off. And I could not determine at which point I violated that verse. But I'm telling you, by the feeling of my stomach, I did. All right? Doesn't forbid eating, but it says, yeah, that sword place, even there, you got to have a limit. The Bible does not explicitly forbid drinking, but it definitively, clearly speaks about drunkenness and says, doesn't go there. God created sex as pure and a beautiful act between a married man and woman yet makes it abundantly clear that there are ways to take that beautiful act and turn it into an act of sin. Is it possible that jealousy at its very core is a righteous thing, but our sinful motives come in and pollute it? In the passages we looked at, jealousy was often paired with tainted motives. We had jealousy and rivalry, jealousy and unkind speech, jealousy and anger and angry outbursts of rage, jealousy and selfishness, jealousy and selfish ambition. Look at those pairings. None of those could be said of God. None of those pairings could be said of God. 
Paul actually makes reference to a kind of jealousy that you might find surprising. 2 Corinthians 11.2, we read, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, and he's speaking to the church, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. He refers to a kind of jealousy as actually a godly jealousy. There is a difference between what we might call sanctified jealousy and sinful jealousy. Think about marriage again. Sanctified or godly jealousy is a proper response when a husband or wife violates trust through infidelity. When an exclusive covenant relationship is dishonored, sanctified jealousy is the passion that fights to restore that relationship. A spouse is completely, biblically vindicated in being jealous when one person steps out on the relationship. A sacred covenant has been violated. I'm yours. You're mine. I'm going to fight for that. You're worth too much to me. We made a promise. There would be nothing virtuous for the offended spouse to say, I love you and you know that, but if you want to step out, I guess that's okay. I'm good with that. That's not love. That's warped. True love fights. True, life doesn't, true love doesn't share. Not this way. A marriage vow is just that. It is a vow. It is a sacred trust between two people. Both are fully right to say to each other, I'm yours, you're mine. And to feel a sense of jealousy if one or the other chooses to violate that sacred trust. Now think about this from the Bible this event in John chapter 2. You've heard this event before. In John chapter 2, Jesus goes into the temple. He sees these people doing all of this selling going. And as he sees it, he crafts a whip and he starts to go around and drive out the animals that are in there. And he starts to drive out people and and he flips tables along the way. He says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And it says the disciples remembered this prophecy from scripture. Passage, passion, For God's house will consume me. Do you understand that what's going on here is actually an expression of jealousy on the part of Jesus? He says that the worship of money was being set up as a rival to worship his father. He states that this place, this house, had an exclusive purpose. It was a place of prayer, a place of sacrifice, a place of worship. But they had turned it into a bazaar, a money-making machine for selfish purposes. The relationship between God and his people is an exclusive relationship. God is fully justified in expressing sanctified jealousy when our hearts start to wander, when we set up rival gods. If the jealousy analogy with God is to be fully understood, we again need to turn back to understanding this picture in the context of marriage. Repeatedly, God refers to idol worship as adultery, as prostitution, and as promiscuity. Let me give you one example from the Bible. There are so many. If you were to turn to Jeremiah chapter 3, the first three verses, he reiterates a law from the beginning of the Bible. It says, if a man divorces a wife and she goes and marries someone else, he will not take her back again. He cannot take her back again, for that would surely corrupt the land. But you have prostituted yourselves with many lovers. So why are you trying to come back to me, says the Lord? Look at the shrines on every hilltop. This is an obvious reference to idol worship. Is there any place 
that has not been defiled by your adultery with other gods. Again, he's putting idol worship and adultery together. You sit like a prostitute beside the road, waiting for a customer. You sit alone like a nomad in the desert. You have polluted the land with your prostitution and your wickedness. That's why even the spring rains have failed, for you are a brazen prostitute and completely shameless. All of those references are not references to sexual sin. They were references to idolatry. They were references to the way that the people had sold their heart to another god, to a false god, rather than the true and living god. The entire book of Hosea is an object lesson of the marriage relationship between God and his people. God actually commands this prophet to marry a prostitute as a picture of the polluted relationship that was going on between Jehovah and the people of Israel. I don't think it's possible to say this strongly enough. God did not give us the human relationship of marriage just for kicks. It was not merely so that we would not be lonely, although it does solve loneliness. Marriage is a picture. The bride and the groom are a picture of the relationship that exists between Jehovah and the believer. Sadly, when we violate that covenant through adultery, when we cheapen that covenant through living together and sleeping together before marriage, when we trample that covenant through a series of separations and serial marriages, when we redefine that relationship by mixing genders and numbers of spouses, when we violate the marriage partnership in any way, what we do is we distort a beautiful picture. That's why marital purity matters so much. Our marriage is much like Hosea's. It's a picture. It's an object lesson. It's a sermon without saying anything. It is a witness without words. It's a way to say to a lost world, this exclusive love I share with this man or this woman is a picture of the exclusive love I share with God and that God shares with me. It is a picture of an exclusive relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. It is no wonder to me that marriage is in the crosshairs of the enemy, and it always has been. If he can get us to distort the picture, if he can get us to do that, in one more way, people lose the clear vision of the relationship between the believer and God, between Christ and his bride, the church. This is why we fight for marriage. This is why we think marriage is worth fighting for. This picture matters. When people get to see marriage operating the way God designed it, they get a lesson without language. No one has to preach or teach or share a word. Others get to watch a living object lesson of an exclusive relationship expressed in the words, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, from your place of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Anything, anything that calls my heart away from God is an idol. Anything that competes for my allegiance to God is a form of idolatry. Every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. God has every right to express jealousy when we craft our false idols and caress our false gods. If my heart were to wander from my wife, if we were to wander from Kim, it is absolutely appropriate and fully biblical for her to express godly jealousy, a sanctified passion that says, I'm yours, you're mine. If my heart were to wander from God, replacing him with a a rival or displacing him with an idol, 
He's absolutely justified in expressing holy jealousy. Ours is an exclusive relationship. He says, I'm yours, you're mine. God wants, God demands exclusivity. He's not sharing when it comes to his affections. That's not the way it works. He wants our affections to go toward him alone. He calls our idolatrous wandering adultery, promiscuity, prostitution, sin. He's a jealous God, and that's a good thing. It's a virtuous response. He has such passion for you that he's unwilling to share. He's just unwilling to share. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from eternal destruction, from your slavery to sin. You must have no other gods before me. So let's stand up together. And as we do, we're going to pray this verse that hopefully you've been praying this week. I've seen a lot of you post between you version and things you've done at your house to remind yourself of the verse. We've been saying these words that we find in the Old Testament and then once again uh, in the words of Jesus. They're words that remind us of our exclusive relationship with God. So let's say these together out loud, praying them to God. Listen, Southfield, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So as we walk from this place today, God, I pray that you would do a few things. First of all, continue to expose the idols. Continue to expose the places in which we do not love you with all of our heart, all soul, all mind, all strength. Show us those things. And then, God, just give us the absolute passion to break down and destroy those idols, to embrace this exclusive relationship more radically, to say with all of our hearts, I'm yours, you're mine, no one else, nothing else. I'm all in. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go enjoy your week. We'll see you.